until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects of him who is the head, even Christ for whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Having some connectivity issues. We'll just go back to doing it the old school way. Over the past year, we have been engaged in a study on the topic of fellowship. And as we are going to continue this evening, a study of this idea... And also, back in July, we started a series of lessons on, on Bible authority. And then we followed that by a sporadic uh, series on the work of the church. And as we have tried to address the role of the church in evangelism and, and benevolence, we have noted some of the limitations and freedoms that we have in accomplishing those works. Tonight, we're going to sort of kind of come to a crossroad where we're going to have an intersection of the ideas of fellowship as well as the work of the church. And we're going to be drawing that second part, that the work of the church, that second series, we're going to bring that to a close tonight as we look at the role of edification among the Lord's people. And in Ephesians chapter 4, this is a very... Uh, Familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of us that help us understand the importance of edification. And we need to define what edification is. That might be a word that we're not so used to, or it might not even be in some of your Bible translations. Depending on the translation that you use, it might be translated a little bit differently. But this is going to be something that I think is important for us to understand, to come to a clear, articulate understanding of the work of the church in edification because it is going to have an effect on our understanding of fellowship as well. And it's going to be something that is extremely important for us to come to this understanding because if we do not, it will lead to erroneous ideas of the other. And so tonight we want us to, uh, want us to study from uh, the book of Ephesians and other passages that have to do with this idea of edification. And first we need to understand what edification is, that it is the idea of being built up. From the Greek word, uh, I'm not going to try to even pronounce it before you tonight, but it is a Greek word that means house, that comes from the word house, and it is to construct a house. And that is something that we find in the Scriptures. It is speaking about how it is motivated by love. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and in verse 1, 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, or love builds up. That's the idea that we have when it comes to edification, that it is the notion of building each other up, strengthening our faith and our understanding of God's Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we see that one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, that Paul concludes about our assembling together and that everything needs to be done in a decent and orderly fashion is because we have come here for a purpose. We come here to worship God and we come here to edify. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and in verse 26, he says, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. And he's saying that's not how things ought to be. You guys are in utter chaos. He says, Let all things be done for edification. So everything that we do, it's for the purpose of edifying each other. We are supposed to be motivated by love and we come here to strengthen each other, to build each other up in their faith and your faith. And my faith is increased whenever we come to work together. And so what we see in the New Testament is that there is a lot about edification as something that is just foundational for our life among the people of God. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 14, in Romans chapter 14 and in verse 16, a passage that has to do with our personal liberties in Christ. Uh, whenever we might have a difference in opinion on certain things, of a certain judgment or a certain practice. He tells us in Romans chapter 14 that we can still get along and we can still remember that even when we might disagree, we have in Christ, we have all been saved and we are all justified. And he tells us in verse 16, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That we come here to build each other up. That's one of the purposes that we hear each other as brethren. That we have come to build each other up as Jude tells us in Jude and verse 20. That we are to build each other up in the most holy faith. We are expected to do that when we come together to worship and to study and learn from God's will. And what we learn about edification is that it is done through a particular way. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, Paul is having a discussion with the shepherds and the elders in Ephesus. And he encourages them to remain committed to God and to God's Word. In Acts chapter 20, at the end, near the end of that discussion, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
And he says that the Word of God's grace is able to build you up or it's able to edify you. So that begs the question, how do we edify each other? And I believe Paul has told us throughout this discussion, if you go back to verse 20 in the same chapter, Paul says, How I do not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul was involved in teaching you. Teaching is something that is how we accomplish this work of edification, that we are seeking to teach God's Word. In verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says that I was testifying, I was teaching, I was teaching about repentance and faith in Christ. That is how you build one another up. That's how you edify each other. You tell people what they need to hear. In verse 24, Paul says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. That Paul was committed to teaching the gospel is apparent. And that is how... He understood this idea of building each other up and encouraging each other. That was how it was going to be accomplished through building each other up in our faith and teaching the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 25, Paul says, And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my faith. He went about preaching the kingdom. In verse 27, he says, For I do not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose or the whole counsel of God. In verse 32 of the passage that we already looked at at the beginning of this section, And now I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up. Paul has it very clear in his mind that edification being built up, that this is accomplished through teaching and through instruction. And that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 4, our text for tonight. In Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul is explaining about this work of edification, and how critical and how important it is. Edification is the building up of each individual member of the local church. That's something that's really important for us to understand tonight. That when we're talking about edification, we're not talking about just a select few. We're not talking about edifying and building just some people up, the strong ones or just the weak ones. We're talking about building each individual member up. In Christ, he Paul tells us, gave certain gifts to the church. He says in verse 11, Paul does, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. 
And I want you to just see with all of those roles, while they're distinct in their purpose and their function, there is one major element that they all overlap in. And that is, they are all roles which have the obligation to teach. Apostles, we had their teachings preserved for us in Scripture. The prophets, they taught, they explained, they, they gave forth a pronouncement from God. Evangelists, I think that one might be a little bit obvious. Pastors that have a responsibility to teach God's Word, to feed the flock, as Paul says. And teachers, again, another pretty obvious one. They all have to do with teaching. Christ, He saw fit whenever He established the church to set forth teaching roles in a very preeminent way. And that this is about the preeminent role of teaching among the Lord's people. That Christ expects those who are following Him to be taught. That's a fundamental preeminent principle that you see in the Scriptures. And we learn the purpose of it. The purpose of teaching is found here in verses 12-16. through 16. And so we're going to, on the next chart, hopefully you'll be able to see how this comes about. That this is going to have a purpose. That it's going to be the equipping of the saints. The teaching that is going on, it's to equip saints. It's to promote work among saints. The work of service, he says in verse 12. The building up of the body of Christ. That's edification right there. And that it would bring about the unity of the faith, he says in verse 13, and the knowledge of the Son of God. And then he goes on that we would be a mature man. Maturity, growth, he describes there, that we would measure to the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, that we would grow up to be like Christ. Christ, He's sort of... I imagine Him being very tall in this passage, that we are to grow up. As a kid, I always thought Shaquille O'Neal had to be like the, the tallest basketball player ever. And that I knew I chance of ever being as tall as Shaq, but I wanted to be. But now, spiritually, we need to all be striving to be as tall as Christ. He tells us in verse 14 that we would be no longer children tossed here and there by waves and about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, that we're no longer going to be children, immature, we're no longer going to be easily swayed by something that comes along. But instead, we need to be developed enough so that we can speak the truth in love. He has in this whole passage several of these phrases that help us understand the purpose behind teaching. Why do we teach? Why do we have Bible classes? It's to accomplish all of these things so that we can grow up, he says, in verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. And he says in verse 16, at the very end of that verse, 
for the building up of itself in love. But remember, I made the statement that edification is not just about edifying the select few. It's about building up everybody. And I think verse 16 makes that abundantly clear. Notice, he says, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What is going to cause the local church to grow? When you grow in your faith. That will have an effect on the whole body. Whenever you might have pain, maybe your foot hurts, or your back hurts, you have aches and pains in your body. It might just be one part of your body that you're aching and having some pain that you're having to deal with. But it causes an effect in the rest of the body, doesn't it? You're not functioning as well as you normally could if that ache or that pain would go away. Edification, teaching God's Word, it's about trying to alleviate the aches and the pains in a spiritual sense. That we want to increase our knowledge and our understanding. We want to grow in our maturity. We no longer want to be children immature. We want to be people who are fundamental in our understanding of God's Word. That we are people who are willing to take a stand and speak the truth in love. That is the purpose of our teaching. That's why we have Bible classes. That's why when we come together, we have an emphasis on Teaching God's Word. It's so important and it is so critical because edification is the intended result of God's Word. In the book of 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and in verses 16 and 17, Paul says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That first element in particular, that Scripture is, is profitable for teaching. He says in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God's Word has been given to us to help us, to equip us. And the work of edification is also going to involve correction. It's going to involve rebuke, false teaching. He tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, just a few verses later, in verse 2, Paul says to Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. 
It's because of that danger. Paul says to Timothy, you're going to have to correct some things. You're going to have to rebuke people from time to time. And you're going to have to stand up for God's Word. Edification is at its heart a commitment to studying and learning the Word of God. And there's something about that. that You can't lead a horse to water and make it drink. That our instruction... We might be able to provide instruction. We might have teachers who are willing to teach. We might have people who are willing to stand for the truth. But each individual member willing and ready to learn for edification to have its full effect. Now, I can't blame Kyle if I don't learn as much. I can't blame Joe if I don't learn what I need to learn. That I have to take some ownership in this. And I have to be willing to devote my life and my heart to the purpose that Christ has given us in the church. Edification is extremely, extremely important. And I believe it is the preeminent work of the Lord's church. Because... You might say, well, no, I think evangelism is the most important work of the church. I would say edification probably is because whenever we edify, whenever we are all growing, when we are all being built up, when we are all learned in the Scriptures, and when we know the Gospel, when we have been instructed, and when we have gained a better knowledge and understanding of how God's plan has worked, then, after I have learned it better, after you have learned it better, then I'm able to share it with others better and more effectively. And so, evangelism is going to come out of a church that edifies each other. And so, edification is extremely important in the work of the church. But what I want us to begin to see as well this evening is that this brings us to that intersection of fellowship. The early church was devoted to learning. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. After these people had been baptized into Christ, after they had had their sins washed away, in which they had gladly received the instruction from Peter and the apostles, it says that they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. That they were committed to listening and learning as much as they could. And the early church was devoted to the work of edification and the joining efforts to worship and spiritual growth. Throughout the book of Acts, you can read about it. 
how they were growing in number and how they continued to increase as they were learning and zealous in sharing the Gospel. But in Acts 2 and verse 42, he talks about this notion of fellowship, of participating in worship together. And edification is extremely important. That is, in one way, how we manifest our fellowship with each other. It is that we come together a couple of times on Sundays, not just because it's convenient. It's probably Sometimes it can be inconvenient to come back a second time on Sunday evening to listen to another sermon from a long-winded preacher. Thank you for not amening that one. But we come together because it's important for us to learn and to grow and to be edified. And our fellowship is in is committed to instruction from the Scriptures and through worship activities. And fellowship is expressed in worship and spiritual activity. Worship with the body of Christ is fellowship enacted and embodied. It's not just theoretical. It's something that we are living out when we worship God. And these, there are some specific ways in which fellowship was brought to life that we see here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse, verses 42 through 47, through the end of that chapter, we see what the early church was involved in. That they were involved in worshiping together as the collective body of Christ. And it says in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And then we're told about the individuals who were so zealous and so committed that they wanted to make sure that every Christian was taken care of. And that people began selling their property. And I would just have you note in this passage, that's not the collective group, right? The church didn't own property at this point. This is individual action. I think that's important for us to stop and just appreciate that individual believers sold their property and shared it with other individuals. He says in verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. So they shared and they gave to people who had need. And he describes the collective worship that was going on day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple. That phrase, one mind, that helps us understand that we're talking about a unified group, a unified body of believers. And they came together for collective worship, not just a couple of times, but they came together day by day to worship in the temple. And then it says, and they broke bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. That is again, individuals who shared their meals together from house to house. It was not collective church activity. That's something that we need to just appreciate about 
what the Scriptures teach about this notion of fellowship. And I'm afraid sometimes we use this idea of fellowship, we use that word, and we only think pizza and donuts or lasagna. If you don't like any of those, then whatever your favorite food is, then plug it in there. That's how we oftentimes think of fellowship. That's how people just who use the English language use fellowship many times. But that's not what the collective church came together to do in Acts chapter 2. Paul, he places this idea of individuals who would socialize and eat together he places that very clearly in among those among individual action, not corporate church action, not the whole body, but individuals. In First Corinthians chapter eleven, in verse twenty-two, Paul says, "What do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? That social and recreational activity that is important, and we will talk about that in just a moment." It is extremely important for the local church. But it is not a work of the church. And so when we are referring to this idea of our fellowship together, that is distinctive from hospitality. It is something that we will recognize, I think, the dangers of conflating the two here. That you have the church action or individual action. And I believe, you can just look at me and you can tell that I'm not going to turn down a meal. If you want to go eat, we're going to go eat. We're going to go enjoy a meal together. We're going to go visit with each other. Hospitality, we find, is performed by individuals though. Social, recreational activities, that is the responsibility of individuals and families. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 2, the qualifications for elders. Paul says there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and in verse 2, notice how he says this. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, hospitable, hospitality. Who is qualified? He's talking about a man, an individual. Hospitality is given to the realm of individuals, not to collective church fellowship. Well, that doesn't mean social socializing and, and doing fun things together. That doesn't mean that's unimportant. In fact, I believe the opposite is true. I think hospitality is critical for the life of a church. And if we're going to be a close-knit congregation, if we're going to be a spiritual family, then we need to associate with each other. We need to do things outside of the walls of this church building. We need to be together. We need to sit down together. We need to eat together. We need to talk and visit. We need to share each other's lives. We need to share our heart with one another. You're not going to get me to disagree to any of that. 
But what we have to recognize is the distinction between the work of the church and the work of the individual. Now, many of our institutional brethren or those that we might sometimes label as liberal or more liberal than where we're at that have kitchens or fellowship halls or they don't those are kind of out of vogue those terms now they like to call it a family life center something of that nature but it used to be the idea of a fellowship hall they used that term they stuck that term on the building many times and it was a building dedicated to eating or playing basketball if you called it a gym, they'd say, no, it's not a gym. I always heard uh, a preacher, he said that he kept on having a discussion with these people and they said, no, it's not a gym. So he uh, created an acronym, INAG. It's not a gym. INAG. It's an INAG. So it's not a gym. But you have this idea that you have these social recreational activities as part of something that's funded by the church. That's what many of our institutional brethren did. And they argued from Acts chapter 2 that fellowship involved socializing and recreation and eating together. What we need to recognize in Acts chapter 2 is that it was individuals who went back to their homes to eat. That's why Paul said that you have houses to eat and drink in. But what I'm even more concerned about today are people who would describe themselves as non-institutional or conservative members of the church who are arguing the same exact way. They're making the same exact arguments. I've heard this would from a sermon that a conservative, non-institutional preacher like me said, fellowship always lives at dinner tables. Or he says, if you think it's unimportant for us to be together... Just for clarification, I've never said that. <laughs> but he says, if you think it's unimportant for us to be together, eat together, and learn of one another, then you just don't understand how fellowship lives in the life of real people. He goes on to say, to say that we can be in fellowship and not be hospitable and not hear each other and not see each other and not feed each other and not know each other and say, well, we got to go worship and that's the end of it. Because it calls into question our understanding of fellowship all together. Now, just want to point out the danger of this. First off, I think we conflate the ideas of fellowship and hospitality. I think that becomes very evident here in this particular quote. And I think we use a straw man to say, well, you know, 
You just don't like eating together. You don't want to be together. No, I never said that. It's very important for us to be together. It's very important for us to visit with each other and know what's going on in each other's lives. Now, whenever you're in pain, whenever there's something difficult going on in your life, we need to know about it. I want to know about it. I want to pray for you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I don't know anyone who argues that we can be in fellowship with each other and not share our homes and be hospitable to each other. But I'm afraid. Whenever we start making statements like this, it looks as if we are trying to change something about the church. That we're trying to fundamentally change our understanding of fellowship and the work of the church. And I think if someone is unwilling to talk about the distinctions in Acts chapter 2 between the church and the collective action of all believers as the body of Christ versus the individual and what participates and goes on in someone's home, I'm afraid they're trying to broaden whom they may fellowship. And we need to be concerned about that. Because the work of edifying our brothers and sisters is more important than any social and recreational activity that we are involved in. The work of building each other up. If you say, hey, Sean, I've got something going on. I've got a serious Bible question and I'm having a crisis of faith, or I have a question about uh, marriage or and divorce, or if I have some kind of issue with believing in the resurrection of Jesus, I'm going to say, let's get our Bibles out. Let's study that right now. And if we have to miss a meal or two together, then I'm going to do it. Because edifying each other is more important than any social or recreational activity. I think that's what Paul is trying to get across in, in Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 when he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 19, So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another, that I need to put your concerns above my own. That's so important for us to recognize and appreciate. Which leads to the greater problem of the social gospel. Because these misconceptions about fellowship and edification, they're nothing new. And when we use the phrase the social gospel, I used to think, especially as a kid, I would hear sermons on the social gospel, and I thought it was just against having a fellowship hall or a building. But as I've gotten older, I think I've understood that the term is much broader than that. And maybe for a period of time, it did become more about just social things. But I think we have kind of turned a corner in maybe my generation about 
embracing this idea of what the social gospel is, an emphasis on social. And that we're trying to fix all of society's woes. And we think the church has a part in all of that. And that whenever people might throw around that term social gospel, or whenever they are saying, hey, who does this church vote for? Or who are you going to, uh, as the preacher, or as the leadership of the church, who are you going to tell your members to vote for? Who are you going to endorse as in an official capacity, whenever we're talking about political activism in the church, that's the social gospel. Whenever we might think the church needs to take a stand on social and uh, socioeconomic issues, then... That's the social gospel. Whenever people say that poverty is a moral issue, we need to be aware that's the social gospel. Or whenever we're, the church needs to stand up for voting rights and social justice, that's the social gospel. Or whenever the church needs to get involved in health and medical activism, what is the church's stance on vaccines? If that hasn't been asked yet, it will be. Whenever people say healthcare is a moral issue and they expect the church to jump in and to fix that problem, and also the social and recreational activities sponsored by the church, that is the social gospel. All of this. And what it misses, what, what we have to understand is that none of those things are the work of the church. There may be serious issues and problems that we have to deal with on a societal level. Maybe it is feeding the poor. Maybe it is building shelter for them. Maybe it is providing health care for people who do not have it. But those things, those problems may stem from the home or the health care or from government, but they are not the church's problems to fix and engage with. Now there is nothing wrong for you to have an opinion and speak up and try to do something about these issues as an individual. But we must respect the distinction between the work and the role of the church and the individual. Because the social gospel approach, it misses something on a couple of different levels. I think first, there is the conflation of this idea that... Well, Jesus would feed the poor. And if you love your neighbor, then you're going to do what Jesus did. And so, many people might appeal to the Good Samaritan teaching of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus taught about you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and then that man, wanting to justify himself, asks, well, who's my neighbor, Jesus? And then Jesus gives him the parable of the Good Samaritan. What we have to recognize is that was not done by any congregation. <laughs> that was not done by any church. Jesus was talking to individual disciples. You love your neighbor as yourself. 
If you want to feed the poor, you go find someone to feed. If you want to give your money to them, you go give your money to them. That's fine. But it's not the work of the local church. I think it comes from a misunderstanding of that principle of loving your neighbor. That was given to an individual disciple. And then we have to recognize that the kingdom of God is not about fixing all of this world's issues. In John chapter 18 and in verse 36, Jesus made the statement to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. I don't know how plainer Jesus could have made that statement that He is not here to fix all of society's woes. He came here to fix the number one issue that has plagued every society and every nation since the dawn of time, since Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. The problem of sin. That's what Jesus came here to do. The kingdom of God that He establishes carries on that same mission to share the gospel of salvation from sin. The Lord's church is to be engaged in building each other up, in teaching each other the Word of God. Especially the weak. And then believers are called to then share the gospel with others. Edification in evangelism. Addressing the problem of sin. That is the gospel that Jesus shares. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Salvation and forgiveness of sins. And that is what we want to stand for as well. Because the Lord provided gifts and resources for His church, primarily teachers. That places a premium on the value of teaching and preaching God's Word. And when we are assembled together to worship, we want to follow the example of the disciples in the New Testament who are committed to learning and growing in their faith. We want to grow and become strong in our knowledge and our understanding of Christ. We want to grow up to the measure of Christ. We don't want to be immature any longer. And it's vital for you that you grow. It's vital for me that I grow. It's vital for each member to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our individual growth is vital for the life of the whole congregation. Tonight, we want to share with you the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this earth to die for your sins. He hung on the cross and shed His blood so that your sins could be forgiven.
And if you're not a Christian and a child of God, if you have never named the name of Christ and confessing Him in faith and being baptized in water, we want to encourage you to make that decision. Come to Christ. Follow Him. Have your sins away and be added to the Lord's church. And begin a life of growth and maturity and that you are going to have a life seeking to do what is right and pleasing to God. We want to be a part of that. We want to encourage you. We want to help you grow. Maybe it is that you have made that choice to follow Christ, but you've not been living faithfully. Maybe you've left the Lord. Maybe you're going through some trials and some temptations. We're here to pray with you, pray for you, help you and encourage you in whatever way we can. Tonight, if you are subject to the gospel invitation, We'd encourage you to come as we stand and as we sing.